Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 289 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mark. Now, on today's episode, I have a returning guest. It's a huge one, and this is now their third time on Mark and Me. I'm thrilled to announce that today I'm joined by the amazing Alex Winter. In the past, we focused on his acting career. We talked all about The Lost Boys. We've talked about the incredible Bill and Ted films. But this time round, the whole episode is dedicated to documentary making. And this is in celebration of his brand new documentary, which is out today. It's called The YouTube Effect. It's such an eye-opening documentary where Alex presents a thoughtful, troubling look at YouTube this huge beast of a site which has such a humble origin which has now gone on to change how we experience the world and this documentary gives us the biggest insight into this. I've been lucky enough to see this already and for me it's one of the best documentaries out there. I think Alex Winter's documentary work is unbelievable. Zappa only a couple of years ago blew my mind but this is the one that you need to see and the best news is if you're listening to this right now As I just said, the documentary is out now. So go on Amazon Prime and check it out and you will not be let down. But before I get to the interview with me and Alex today, I just want to quickly touch base and talk about my last episode. On episode 288, I was joined by the film director, Lucky McKee. I want to say a massive thank you to everyone that checked out this episode. He's an amazing director with a great vision and May is still one of the best films out there. And it's been amazing to see how many people have checked it out since the episode came out. So thank you so much. But today it's all about Alex Winter. But before I hit that play button, let's give a quick shout out to the sponsor of the podcast, Richer Sounds. If you're in the market for a brand new TV or home cinema surround sound system, or even just a piece of Sonos, check them out on richersounds.com. And thanks to those guys each and every month for sponsoring Mark and Me. It means the absolute world. Right. This is important. This interview is one of my favourites. This documentary is one of my favourites. So let's get to it. Here's me and Alex Winter talking all things documentaries. Alex, thanks yeah. for joining me again today on the Mark and Me podcast. It's good to be back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Alex, at the moment, you're now top <clears throat> alongside the singer of Thrice, who's called Dustin Kensrew, and the film director, Neil Blomkamp, for being on the podcast three times. So all three of you now are on that <laughs> leaderboard of being on the top. So welcome to the <laughs> highest point that you can be. That's, uh, that's an honor. That's great. We've been on and talked previously about all your work, mostly with acting. So we've talked about Lost Boys, we've talked about Bill and Ted. But this time around, what I really want to do is delve deep and talk more about your documentary making because a lot of people will see you as an actor, but more importantly now, your work is about writing and being a documentary maker, but also a filmmaker. Um, Mm -hmm. What I'd love to know is where it all started for you when you decided, I know obviously the works of Napster was something that interested you and that's what made you start this kind of world of documentary making, but where did it all start that you thought, I want to start telling stories through documentaries? Uh, Well, I have been making films for quite some time 
before that. And uh, I was working on a film about Napster, uh, which was having trouble getting off the ground. People have, you know, and I think it's true to this day, people have a hard time getting their head around stories about technology, especially extremely disruptive technologies. I think it's just kind of an overwhelming uh, narrative for people to, to wrap their heads around. And uh, we were having trouble getting that made at the studio where I had set it up. And uh, I had spent so much time writing it and, and meeting everyone. And the story was so incredible and so needed to be told that uh, I decided to try to pitch it as a doc. So having made that first documentary really gave me the bug because crafting story with real people is is an extraordinary thing. If that's if that's a medium that you care for. It's very specific, and I don't think it's for everyone. But uh, I certainly very much enjoy being in the trenches with real people and figuring out how to best weave a narrative together out of that. Um, so I've kept going. And I, I, this was the YouTube effect, the doc I have coming out now, is I think my ninth feature documentary. Um, and uh, I have... Uh, either my seventh or my ninth because I've made long shorts as well. I get confused, but um, I've tended to make stories about uh, sort of on the edge cultural issues um, or cultural people like the Frank Zappa documentary. Um, so my stories tend to be specific, I think in terms of the themes that interest me and I've made, this is my fourth technology feature doc. I read and I was seeing and doing some research over the last couple of weeks, and I saw that when you were part of the Napster uh, kind of community, I think what a lot of people didn't realize is Napster was part of talking to people. It was before you had like Microsoft Messenger as much and Facebook uh, chat and you know Twitter and stuff, but that used to be a really good community about bands and people sharing music, even though everyone looked at it as a negative because bands got ripped off, etc. It also was the start of a revolution for me where people would start talking and sharing and saying, have you heard this band? And if you like Metallica, there's this band. And you were part of that, weren't you, growing up? I was. Um, I wasn't. I was actually an adult by then, so I wasn't even growing up. I, I, if I'd have had that in my youth, I think it would have been a very seminal um, thing for me. The uh, That was what intrigued me about Napster was because I, I was an, an adult, I was actually working here in London at the time, um, literally across the street from where I am now in Soho. Um, and uh, I was captivated by the strength of the community. And I'd been online for, for a long time by 1999. Um, I had been online since the mid 80s and was very captivated by the growth of online communities, even before the web and the early days of, of the public facing internet, um, what we called the BBS or Usenet era. And that was about community. And but it was they were very small communities, there'd be 1000s of people max. Uh, with Napster, you had for the first time, you had 70 to 100 million people online at the same time through one database, talking to each other around the world. It was it's really hard to explain that to young people who take that for granted. It wasn't there was no broadband internet yet, it was still dial up. And you were suddenly connected to the entire planet. And you were meeting like minded people around the world who had the same interests as you, no matter how rarefied they were. Um, I made I made a lot of long lasting connections and friendships on Napster. And because of my age, I wasn't looking to that service to to pull down media, because I'd bought the record industry at that time was getting you to buy everything five times over, you were buying it on vinyl, you were buying it on CD, you were buying it on cassette, <laughs> so true. right? I had like the same album, like five times each time was $20 it was extremely expensive. So 
it was like $20 a pop about to get each one of these same recordings, which you had all of over and over again. Um, so it wasn't really a stealing service for me. I under, I was well aware what was going on. It was, it was a front and center issue. Um, and that's what interests me about documentaries is they get into often very self-contradictory situations where there isn't really a hard black or white. It is actually gray, which is much more how real life is. So uh, that was why I found it a captivating world when it happened. And I think it's also why it made it a good doc subject. Were there certain documentaries that you fell in love with when you were growing up? So before the Napster days that you used to uh, watch and kind of aspire to want to then make, were there certain subject matters? Because there's such a range of documentaries. But I, I love all the stuff about stuff that I will never get to do. So Everest documentaries I can watch all day long. I can mm -hmm. sit and watch stuff that entertains me as well. So only this week I watched one about the making of Pez toys on Netflix. Uh, and then I watched King of Kong, which is one of my favorites ever about trying to get the world yeah. record on that. And every single documentary has a different feel, a different vibe, a different story. But were there ones that when you were growing up that you absolutely loved, that you were kind of inspired and probably influenced by? Yeah, I loved. Um, I'm a I'm a huge Boonwell person, so I loved his documentary "Lamb Without Bread." That's you know quite old, um, uh, but amazing, and still holds up, and still amazing. And you can actually watch it for free on YouTube, uh, just to give YouTube a plug <laughs> that they don't. Because they need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Just this, this little known video. Yeah, that's YouTube.com. Yeah. 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 I think so. That might even be something like that, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so that was very, um, I think that was one of the first times that I'd seen a documentary that I realized it was an art form and that it could be uh, cheeky and self-contradictory. The narration in, in that documentary is, is almost all disingenuous. Um, so it's saying one thing and meaning another and just lying throughout. It's very sardonic and it's almost like a Monty Python skit. Um, is very uh, is really kind of playing with the form in ways that people are just starting to do now. Buell was doing it, you know, uh, generations ago. Um, so that was really seminal for me. Coming up, um, you know, once the sort of golden age of docs, the for which was for me actually the sixties and seventies. Um, the Bob Dylan doc, uh, "Don't Look Back," um, the uh, "Gimme Shelter," the the doc that, about the Rolling Stones that really, I think, better than anything, conveyed the crash of the dream of the '60s. Uh, it's an extraordinary topical documentary about a seismic shift in global culture, but through this really extraordinary lens, which is this rock band, and um, and I think that "Gimme Shelter" um, and uh, Barbara Koppel's doc, "Harlan County, USA," which is about a a labor crisis uh really showed me that documentaries could be um on the front lines of what's going on in the world but in, again in an artful and entertaining way uh and i so i think when i was working on napster it was really those kinds of in a way those three films uh that been well because napster is a very cheeky story you've got these kids who are on the one hand saying and saying genuinely look we really just want to create create community but also damn well knowing that they're completely disrupting all the grownups and like dismantling the, the generation that came before them. And that was very interesting to me. Um, so uh, those types of movies I, I love. And now we're in a golden age of documentary. There's, there's so many, I wouldn't even be able to rattle them off. There are people doing incredible work, Laura, Laura Poitras and Herzog and, and uh, so many great filmmakers around the world making, making docs today. So when you went into the world of actually 
you know, going from filmmaking and documentary making in the same era. How do you go about actually editing into a point where you're happy with the length? Because not everybody can do stuff like Get Back, which is, you know, eight hours of the Beatles, which is still one of the best documentaries <laughs> I've seen. I absolutely love it. And I can put it on the background and just kind of switch in and out of it. But to captivate someone and get their attention for maybe an hour and a half, two hours, surely with the subject matters you've got, you could make a documentary for 20 hours on everything that you want to talk about, trying to keep Napster down to a realistic time frame. Zappa, I mean, the world of Frank Zappa, trying to keep that down. So much yeah. stuff, much. I'm, there must be so much material that just gets left on the kind of the floor and you have to just decide, I just can't get it over the line. There is no doubt um, that that is the challenge. I, did, I think the two greatest challenges on a documentary are how to be concise with your storytelling um, and, uh, and then kind of secondarily, what is the storytelling? Uh, cause one kind of feeds the other. And, and I say that because a documentary is similar to writing and in some ways to acting, which is, I think is why I found it a natural transition, um, where you can do all the prep in the world. You can do all the research in the world. Um, and you spend all this time sort of like when you're building a character and acting, you, you, you research, you do all this training, you, you study the, the world of that character at that time, you know it backwards and forwards, and then you have to throw that all away and just tell the damn story, right? Um, otherwise, you're not giving a performance, you're giving like a, a lecture, a class lecture on, on a character from a certain time. Um, docs are very similar to me, where um, I'm really interested in following the flow of the narrative. And th those narratives are driven by human beings. And human beings are wily, and they take you on journeys. So the characters are always the anchor for me. I'm always following a character arc. Um, and what is the emotional journey of these people in this in this film that we're doing? And that always tells me where to end it. Um, and to be honest with you, at that point, I don't have a problem dumping, you know, 99% of our media on the cutting room floor because I'm just interested in tracking the narrative of the character. And YouTube was very much like that because you have all of human history's recorded media at your disposal because that's what YouTube really is. It's a repository for everything that's ever been recorded ever. Uh, so we, we could have made, you know, a trillion films about YouTube. You could make a film about just influencers. You could make a film just about child influencers. You could make a film about, you know, the, the, the DIY revolution, whatever. Uh, but we were really following, I'm always interested in casting a very small ensemble of characters and then tracking those characters and that's what ends up dictating the story. Zappa was a, a, a unique challenge because we had access to his entire vault and he was so prolific and he did so much that again, uh, Mike Nichols, the editor and I really sat down with Zappa himself because we had all this material of him talking. Um, and listen to how he told his story and what did he, how, what did he think his narrative was? Um, and we didn't follow that to the letter because obviously that's our job is to get beyond the individual. Um, but it was very instructive in terms of, of what really the core beats of his life were. And again, we just merrily dumped giant swaths of stuff, probably much to the dismay of many of his fans. Like, where's the great seventies period? It's like, I'm sorry, but you know, Zappa was having a pretty good time. There wasn't a whole lot going on in his life. So we weren't really going to focus on that very much. Um, and that ends up informing what we do. Is that stuff? Cause obviously I think last time we spoke, it was just before the release of um, Zappa. And I think we were talking about it becoming your next release. And was there stuff that you 
coming to have that access must be incredible. And as a fan, you must have just been in your element. But was there moments that there was stuff that you just, it was too personal that you thought, look, I just can't share this with the world. This isn't fair. This is, I need to make a decision here where I say there's a line and this stuff, it's not for everyone. The only material I did that with was nudity. Um, because it was the 60s and Frank was naked in half of the material. I was going to say, every and, day most people yeah. are walking around with out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And Gail was naked. And because he filmed so much of his life with a 16-millimeter camera, um, and in fact, I think I include one shot of him. It's, be- it's a beautiful piece of film, naked, getting dressed, but it's so kind of artfully shot you don't really notice and we don't shine a spotlight on it. It's sort of about his first marriage and it's just this moment of him sort of getting out of bed and putting his clothes back on. But um, I would send the family from time to time because I was making the film independently. I, was make- I wasn't making it with, with their control. So they – and that was very lovely of them. They gave me uh, final cut and full control. Um but every once in a while, I would send them because they hadn't seen most of the material in the vault because nobody had. We are we digitized it all, um, and I would send them something and be like, "I'm just sending this to you, just because you know both your parents are gone and you may want to know this exists." But don't worry, no one else is going to see this. Maybe after the second or third time I did that, they were like, "You know, we really don't need to keep seeing like images of our parents no. naked. Like just just so you know, like don't <laughs> Thanks, feel Alex, obligated. This is six yeah. times in a week. Yeah." <laughs> Like you could keep that stuff in whatever box you got it from, but no, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna do that. But really, other than that, it was it was very important. Was sort of conversely very important for me to find that sensitive, vulnerable, uncomfortable stuff, um, like Frank talking very openly about his sexual mores or lack of at a certain point. Um, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, which was very common at the time, but it's still, you know, one could make a choice to be one way or the other. And he made certain choices. So uh, that was important for me to show. So after completing Zappa, and we'll get onto the YouTube uh, effects in a second, but did that then make you want to then research and go into another world for someone uh, within the music industry? Would you love to do Led Zeppelin or Jeff Buckley? Or was there anyone else that you were a massive fan of that you would love to tell the story of? Because to get that access to speak to the family it must be like a dream come true you had the the treasure chest that no one else has got would there be another artist in the world that you'd love to then focus on honestly not really um i was interested in zappa primarily from a from a theme perspective i, yeah. I finished this film about the silk road black market uh, deep deep web and which was very much about modern technology and the collision of culture with the government uh, and I wanted to make a film about, and that was about radical political players colliding with the government. Um, I wanted to make a film about art, about the politics of making art in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, because my parents were both artists and I grew up in a family with artists who were very uh, idealistic, but also struggled because of the culture of the times in, in the, the eight, by the time we got to the eighties, it was such a conservative world. You know, you had Thatcher here in the UK, you had Reagan in the U S it was a very, very much not an artist uh, supported climate. Um, and I wanted to make a film about what it was like to make art um, at that time. And Zappa was the perfect way into that story um, because he engaged with the politics of the time. He wasn't, as he says in the movie, and I love this quote so much, 
so many like to him so many of his contemporaries didn't care about any stuff they just wanted to get high and make their groovy music and frank was like you guys the world is being taken away from us while you get high and make your groovy music and maybe you're rich so it's okay but for the rest of the people like we got to stop and address this stuff. And I think that's what's going on. That gets me to YouTube effect because that's why I made that yeah. movie. So I have a similar feeling about a lot of my contemporaries today are like, hey, technology is all cool or whatever. And you look around, you guys like, <laughs> we don't do something. We're not going to have a world anymore. Um, so I think that was my way into Zap. And I wasn't really, didn't really have the Jones to just jump into other culture docs. Um, I don't really think it's what I do. No. Uh, I think someone... Somebody in that world that I made a film, I mean, a lot of people came to me. That Zappa did very well, which we were very grateful for. Uh, so a lot of people came to me to do music or culture docs or celebrity-driven docs, which I turned down because it's just not. There was no – I had no way in um, that interested me. So you just then touched upon the point of where we are today. Obviously, the YouTube effect, as people are listening to this, is only a few days away. Um where did it all start? Where was the pen to paper thinking to try and tackle a story as big as YouTube? You've already said it's the biggest. What everyone forgets is it's bigger than any TV channel in the whole world. It's bigger than Netflix. It's bigger than Disney. It's the beast. But where do you even start to think, how am I going to tackle this in a documentary? Uh, well, in a way, those are two questions. How it started is interesting because Gail and her, the, the Titan producer, um, uh, she cold emailed me telling me she was a fan and, and saying that she wanted to do a story around YouTube and had some access and would I collaborate on it with her. And I had been actually working on developing a doc around QAnon um, and some other elements of sort of the collision of technology with um, with politics and, and social um, issues. Uh, and because of we were just cruising into COVID that was, that film was going to be impossible because I would have had to embed myself and all of these families around the country. And I couldn't do that. So uh, it was fortuitous that she came at me and that it was Gail because I have huge respect for her. And, uh, and also once I spoke to her, I realized that she and I saw this landscape the same. And, and what I mean by that is, is when you make a doc, when I make a documentary anyway, it's always driven by some fundamental question that I can't answer. Uh, and every single doc has had that. Um, and the question here for me was why, sort of what you just said, why does nobody, why is there no media narrative that expresses what YouTube actually is, um, which is by far the largest media platform on the planet, bigger than any of these, it's not a social media uh, platform. It, it has a component of it, but that's just a, a tiny sliver of what it does. So it's not a social media company. It's not Twitter. It's not Facebook. It's not TikTok. It's not your TV. It's not your movies. It's not your news. It's not all of recorded human history. It's not DIY. It's not influencers. It's all of those things, right? <laughs> it's with scary when half, you're saying it like that. I'm like, yeah, Christ. With, with four and a half billion views a day. I mean, which is like on a, if you look at a chart graph of all these other companies, like there's YouTube and then there's like this massive blank space and then there's everything else. And yet it's never talked about. Like if they talk about the influence and societal impact of, of the social media on the world, it you're, you hear about Facebook, you hear about Twitter, Twitter, you hear about TikTok. Maybe they barely ever talk about YouTube, and YouTube is having so much more societal impact than any of those other companies by a wide margin. That was the why. That was the big question in my mind, and that's what I said to Gail. I said, "Look, I have a lot of access in the tech space. You have a lot of access in the tech space. Let's go for it." But that immediately led to the next 
conundrum, which is what you just asked me, which is okay, fine, but how do you tell that story? It's so huge. And I, I wasn't cocky, but I was a little emboldened having just come off Zappa where it was a similar conundrum. It's like Gail had walked me down to the vault and said, you have access to all of this. It was just floor to ceiling. row. It was like the end of Citizen Kane or Raiders, right? Just wow. row after row after row of media, floor to ceiling. And Mike, the editor, I looked at him like, oh, my God, right? Um, but we spent so much time figuring out how to craft narrative out of that much media. I had I, – I was kind of sh- – my blade was pretty sharp. And I thought, okay, we could do, I can do the same thing with YouTube. And, uh, and so what I'd set out to do was a very similar process, which was to find a cast of characters that I felt were most close to the story, but human and people and not just a, a, you know, a rogues gallery of like expert talking heads coming yeah. at you one after the other. And I didn't want disgruntled former employees and I didn't want reenactments. I really just wanted a, a very human core ensemble of people who had been directly impacted by this, this platform um, or, and, or ideally worked within the platform like Natalie Wynn or, or Anthony Padilla from Smosh. Um, and that gave me my way forward because then I'm all I'm doing at that point is telling the story of a handful of people. It's quite insane, isn't it? Now that you can become pretty much famous overnight through YouTube. Um, if you get the right algorithm, you get the right people, you get the right numbers, suddenly you can become a millionaire, even at the age of like 15. Um, what was the biggest kind of eye-opener for you when making this documentary about YouTube? Is it the fact of how much of a power beast it is and people are underestimating it? or? I think it was, an, it's, you know, the good thing about documentaries is you don't have to have a single thesis. So you can really, you ha- I mean, if you have a spine, which is your people, and you have a point of view, which I always do, go, I don't make a film about something I don't have a point of view about, or I wouldn't do it, because it's just so much time out of your life, right? That would be miserable. And I think it's um, like passion as well. I can see that in all yeah. your documentaries and work, your heart's there, you're wearing it on your sleeve, you're saying, this is what I think, this is my view. Yeah, I think it's 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 the passion that you are trying to convey, and 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 if it isn't necessarily like I have a solve or I have a solution or listen to my opinion, it's this is why I think it matters, and then it's up to the audience to determine what the answers to these these tough questions are. Uh, so with YouTube, it was a number of things because I like Google and I like YouTube, and my kids are all on it, and they're still on it, and I haven't pulled them off platform, and. There is an enormous amount of benefit, and they've done, I think, to to credit them, they've done a lot of good things in terms of adjusting to some of the harms that uh, the YouTube recommender algorithm uh, was doing to the to the society and uh, for for many years. And it's much harder to get uh, what they call rabbit hole today. I think that's kind of an issue that that came and went to the degree that it was written about at the time where you would like, you know, go online searching for fuzzy slippers and then end up, you know, a neo-Nazi by the time you got <laughs> went to go get tea. Um, that's a, that's a re- big day. Yeah. It, yeah. It doesn't really do that anymore. Uh, and that I would credit them with, but, but it is, um, there are issues uh, around their business model and the fact that they're monetizing very, some very intensely negative and harmful content. And they know that. 
And uh, so there's a there's a profit motive that incentivizes them that makes it very hard for them to police themselves. So I think that there was the, the size of Google was just something I wanted to get into the, the pros and cons like the how a giant like looking coming off Mapster, how a giant Internet based community is that very good for the planet in many ways, the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, giving voice to trans, you know, to the LGBTQ sector and to minorities around the world and to foreign country people in foreign countries something that the gatekeepers and major media generally don't allow youtube has been very robust and passionate about giving voice to people like that um and at the same time the increasing level of harm so there was really you know the the spectrum that was the spectrum of interest that i had and so i sought subjects that could speak to that or had been directly and were being directly impacted by those and you mentioned then, obviously, you're a father of three, you've got three sons, haven't you? Is that correct? I do, yeah. Yeah. I mean, their, their world must be YouTube. Their world must be living in this digital world that you kind of have to accept and deal with because everyone I know literally has a phone or an iPad glued to them at a certain age where they're just obsessed with watching other people do stuff and watch play games and stuff. Have you just kind of come to the point where you have to put your hands up and you can't police it because they're they're glued to it and they're they're kind of wired in uh, not really i i do think that you know and i can't speak for other parents as a parent I, my job is to is to parent my kids and yeah. to make sure they're okay um and a company's job is part of their job is to is to uh to regulate their product so that it does not cause harm so I think on the individual side, it is our job to know these platforms well enough to know where our kids can and can't get harmed by them because they are going to use them and they should be able to use them. They are very beneficial. Um, and most of the studies, despite a lot of the kind of kind of hysteria, satanic panic we have going on right now about children and the Internet, most of the studies show they, that they are, the, the social media platforms are generally um, neutral in terms of their impact on these kids, neutral to positive, actually. Um, and negative things can happen, and very bad negative things can happen, and it is our job to keep an eye on those. But it is really the company's job to, to make sure that those products are safe. And that's what's not going on in the tech world right now. With every other industry, with the automotive industry, we had to fight. You know, Ralph Nader wrote all these great books to sort of get the automotive industry to like put in seatbelts and make their their cars not kill people as much as they were killing people all the time. We're in a similar place now, where there's a lot of resistance from these companies to to play safeguards, and they make all kinds of excuses about why they can't. Uh, so I think it is it is mostly incumbent on the companies themselves, and then I think as a parent. It is our job to know these platforms and to know what's going on well enough to keep an eye on them. And that's why the hysteria bothers me when I see other documentaries or, or newspaper articles saying that your kid is going to become addicted and won't be able to sit at the dinner table without staring at like that's a parenting problem. And you I mean, that's been happening. You know, if you ever saw like Rebel Without a Cause, like, you know, teenagers have never wanted to sit at the dinner table and talk to their parents. So that's not. A technology issue and i think that parents should understand the realities of what's going on so they can prevent their kids from where the actual harms are online because of course there are harms online that's a real eye-opener and i suppose trying to police something as big as youtube like you said i think it has a great a lot of pluses and even this weekend i was away and my wife's learning to crochet she just really wants to learn to crochet 
and I couldn't believe it. Within an hour of a really good instructional video on YouTube, honestly, she was already making like a, a like a big um, cloth, and I was like, this is incredible. Um, and it makes me realize how great technology can be. But then yeah. at the same time, if you wanted to learn to make a bomb, it's on there and it's not policed. Yeah. And that, that for me, and I'm not as delved into this as you, and you've done, you're, you're a genius at what you do and the work you've done for this documentary, but that terrifies me, sir. Like the mm -hmm. way that it can be so creative and so beautiful and so, so, so real, but at the same time, it can be such a dangerous toy that I see kids when I go out for a meal and we'll sit and we'll look over and their parents are just enjoying their own time and the kids just got the free will to do whatever they want on their little tablet. And that scares me that they could be Googling or searching for the wrong stuff. Yeah, there is absolutely no doubt that we need safeguards on these products. There's no doubt. You need traffic lights, like Anthony says in the documentary. It's like a digital intersection with no stoplights and we need regulation we need standards and practices we need safeguards for these products it's absolutely insane that they've been allowed to exist so long without those things it's very hard to regulate tech companies because they have more lobbying power than any other company or most other companies on the planet other than maybe the fossil fuel companies energy companies um and so they are preventing regulation and legislation that would create safeguards. And that is a real because they are it would hurt their profits. And that is really a problem. And and so you are right to be concerned. I just think that it's important for our own mental health to know the platforms well enough to have um, a sense of well-being around the the. Uh, an understanding around what your kids are doing if you have children that are online. And that is, that's just good parenting. If you look, if you just use your iPad as your babysitter and you just stick your kid on the iPad and, and go off to do whatever you're doing, then yes, they're going to be harmed because they are, you're literally picking them up by, you know, the scruff of the neck and hurling them into the, the, the great unwashed sea of humanity, right? Which Without is a any... very big sea and a very big pit. Yeah. Yeah, it, exactly. And that's without supervision. And that, that is failing at your job as a parent. Um, yeah. However, there's there's many degrees between that and letting your kids online. And, and I'm not alone. I'm not like Mr. Technology. I'm just a guy. Right? In fact, I'm not even on this stuff a lot of the time. Um, but all three of my boys, two of them are, are grown now. And now one's out of college. And I still have a middle schooler who's very – and they're all online all the time. But my middle schooler is like literally a hacker. He builds computers, and he's very technologically um, adept. You know, none of them got red-pilled. None of them got went down any rabbit holes. None of them ended up – you know, they all know who the bad people are and, and you know, sort of snicker at the at the really terrible influencers. And, um, and that wasn't because they had me as a dad, like, shaking my fist. I mean, that would have been the worst thing I could do, right? That's yeah. like – you know, it's like I knew not to turn kids onto my music, but to let them find it themselves, right? Because if I did that, they would have like run screaming the other way. So I don't you know, hyper enforce or hyper educate my kids. I just keep an I know the platforms. I know what the harms are. And I keep my eye on what they're consuming. And if if I need to intervene, I don't honestly think I ever had to intervene, which is interesting. I was talking to my 13 year old about this after he saw the film at our premiere in LA a couple of weeks ago. And we were talking about the bad apples online and the harms online on YouTube, because he's on YouTube all day long. Uh, yeah. That's his music. That's his film. That's his friends. That's everything. And, 
And we were, he said, you know, look, I've, I've seen, you know, I was looking at airsoft guns one day and then suddenly started getting a lot of gun stuff like a while ago. And I just moved myself away from that and eventually it dissipated and then it went away. And, you know, I'm pretty good at moderating what I'm doing and I don't want, I don't want a bunch of garbage in my face. And most of my friends don't want to want a bunch of garbage in their face. That's a big credit to you though, as well. You say it isn't because you're the parent, but you've made sure that I think they know what's right and what's wrong and you know the platform well enough. I think because it's such a big beast, some people might think I can't know what's good and bad about YouTube because it's too big, but you know how to create a filter for your kids or make sure that at least they're not like suddenly saying, dad, how can I get dynamite, you know, or something like this, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the big concern that I have just to, to look at like, to your point where there is real fear. Yeah. Um, and obviously our film deals with this very seriously for a great deal of the film. So obviously I know there are real harms like the January 6th insurrection in the States, which was, which more people were driven to that insurrection by YouTube than any other tech platform that exists. So uh, more than Twitter, more than TikTok, more than Facebook. So the, for me, the grownups are the bigger concern than the kids uh, who tend to be more tech savvy. Uh, the grownups tend to get very easily propagandized by disinformation and YouTube is a, is a, very powerful manipulation machine in terms of spreading disinformation. So if you're a child and your parent has been red pilled and your parent doesn't realize that Andrew Tate is bad news or that Alex Jones is, is a murderous, you know, libelous person who's, you know, out to make money by, by spewing hate speech, then obviously it's going to be hard for you to, to navigate your child through that landscape. And that's where I think we have issues, and especially moving forward into this election year in the U.S., where it's really going to be a free-for-all. And a lot of not only are the lessons not learned from 2020, but they're going to be uh, expedited by AI and deepfake and a lot of other technology that, that have grown since 2020, because a lot has radically accelerated in the last four years. So um, I am very concerned about that. And that is not something I'm in the least bit cavalier about. I think that that is a, is a primary fear uh, that I have moving forward is that the media is not addressing these issues seriously enough. Uh, they tend to sort of brush them off and say, you know, you're a doomsayer or, you know, the, these companies aren't doing that much of this or that, or they're in their pocket. I mean, when you're dealing with companies as big, a lot of these, a lot of the media need these big tech companies and they don't want to alienate them. A lot of academia need them. Certainly a lot of uh, big business and government need them. And so they don't want to alienate them. And so they don't tend to address these these harms. And what's your view when we're here today with the world of AI now seeming to be the, the big talking point? Every time I go on Twitter, Facebook, it's X now, isn't it? Not Twitter, Facebook, <laughs> may, Instagram. It may not be by the time it this might comes be. out. Yeah, but... he's a <laughs> lunatic. But um, is, yeah. I, I worry to myself, um, the big talking point now is this fear of AI and that everyone's going to be out of work. But also it does have its pluses and you know it is also creating jobs and it is also doing good things but people are at the moment seeing it in this really negative light of just oh my god am i not going to have a job anymore because a robot's going to come in and do it for me um there is truth to that there is going to be a, um, you know we have a labor crisis in our industry right now back home in in the states that is that is largely driven by the acceleration of technology both the streaming business and AI um, are costing people jobs in a very tangible way already. Um, the danger, I think, of tarnish, of tarring the entire technology with a black brush 
to your point and saying it's all bad is that's just factually incorrect. Right? Of course, it's not all bad. I mean, AI, what does it even mean? I mean, I, I often will just query people who are talking about AI, about what do you think AI even is? And they usually can't even really answer you, right? It's, it's so, it's kind of a buzzword for a very vast sector of technology that's, that's becoming robust right now, which is largely machine learning models. Um, and they operate in many different areas within text, within visuals, uh, just within sort of under the hood code. And that is, of course, there's an enormous amount of good there. I mean, it's, it's, this sort of what I used to deal with 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 some of the you know the, the rise of of technologies that became crypto, a lot of which was was snake oil, but some of which is just very boring and under the hood, and no one you know they they think it's all bad, but they're actually using a lot of it and they don't realize it. Uh, AI is the same. AI is going to be running a lot of systems much better and much more efficiently, and just like the the how we live in a world now with with lower mortality rates, lower crime rates, longer lifespans. AI is going to help all of that. It's going to help people in marginalized areas. It's going to help uh, the world function in a more efficient way. That's the positive. Um, but there is going to be a national labor crisis because a lot of corporations are going to use these technologies to cut costs. And when you cut costs, you're cutting labor. Uh, so yes, there are going, there's going to be a, a, a blowback uh, that's going to impact workers. But I don't think we've even begun to see the level of disruption that's coming. It is going to be so pervasive. And uh, that's one of the things we're touching on with this film. And it's certainly one of the things we're getting into with the labor, with the strikes in, in Hollywood at the moment. I mean, is that, I don't want to uh, give anything away, but surely there's a documentary there in itself, but maybe it needs to be three or four <laughs> years time when we see how big this becomes. Because, I mean, what is... What's next for you? You've just done the YouTube, which for me is the, one of the biggest things you could tackle. Surely AI would be the next big monster to take on after this. It is, but it's too soon. Yeah. It, it would be remiss. I mean, look, the YouTube doc, I was ready to do that when Gail came to me because it's been up since 2006, 2007. And uh, I felt like we had a really good sense of its of its influence, even though I think we're still at the very beginning of Google's rise. Um and the expansion of the story of YouTube is, is there's a lot more story coming. Uh, but I felt it was a good point to drop in on it. The um, AI is too early because the, the, the on-ramp is just beginning and it's accelerating at a massive rate. And there's a lot of issues with it that is going to course correct over the next couple of years. So I would say probably in four or five years would be a good time to, to step in and see what what its impact is and be able to parse it out. Right now you have a lot of hysteria. Um, and I never like making things when all you have is hysteria and you can't actually parse out what's really going on. It's too manic. And like you said, it'd be in a month's time, it'd be out of date. Well, in an hour, it'd be out of date. You know, it'd be it would, yeah. so quickly. So what is, have you got pen to paper at the moment? Have you got meetings going on? Is there something that's in your head that you're, you know, you're thinking this is what I want to do next, or you're just not even going to tell me or entertain the idea of saying <laughs> that yet? Well, I mean, we're always developing stories. So um, uh, I have sort of three docs I'm circling right now, um, and I'll see which one I do. It's a little sluggish because of the, the strike, and also yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to scab. So I, I'm in the WGA, and the, my docs involve a fair amount of writing. So the, you know, the only doc I could do right now is one that's so far down the road that I've done 
most of my writing already. Um, so if I can get that one, I have a very intense political doc that's not technology oriented that I'm very much hoping to get made, but it may not. It's very, it's hard to say with docs, like what triggers and what doesn't. Uh, but I would say that all of the three that I'm looking at are fairly serious because I think we're living in very intense times. So I won't be making a fluffy doc about, you know, some movie star from a bygone era that, um, or rock and roll star or something. It will be, uh, it will probably be dealing with the, the issues of the moment on, on some level. And then I'm working on a narrative film that I'm hoping to do when the strike is over and I'm doing more acting and I did some acting last year that's coming out, but I, I'm, we're in a SAG strike, so I can't talk about that. No, stuff. No, I, mean, I, I literally I, had one thing show and I can't talk about it at all, but, um, but I only mention it because acting is still an important thing to me. And, um, and I am looking to do more of that in the future. So that's sort of like in a general philosophical way, that is, that's something I'm looking at making more time for than I have in the past. I was literally going to say as well, obviously we have to be very careful and at the moment everything's quite limited, but, um, off the success of coming back with Bill and Ted free, you must've had the best time. We talked about it a little bit on the last episode, but I don't think we had talked about the response, but, it was so good for you and Keanu just to give back to the nostalgia, the, the, the fans and the new fans, just a trip down memory lane. And it felt like you and Keanu, when I was watching it, were just having literally the time of your lives. <laughs> it did. It looked like yeah, I couldn't imagine that any day felt like yeah. work. I'm sure I'm sure every day looked like you were just having like, like all your friends on set. You know, it was yeah. it, it was magical. Yeah. It was. It was a family reunion. And, uh, you know, we produced it and we worked very hard to get it uh, financed. And, and it's very hard to make them, believe it or not, because we're in almost every frame and we're running around. And it's very physical. But I would be a liar if I didn't say that they're they're joyous to make. And we have a, we're just everyone is just laughing their asses off all day long. Um and that is the, you know, the, I have huge gratitude. People will often say to me is like, because, you know, since 1989, I can't go anywhere without people chasing me down the street. And um, I mean, maybe that would be irritating people. And maybe, you know, look, I'm, I'm a human being. So like I have bad days like everyone else. I was like, Jesus, will you just give me a little I bit of Let me just room? have my cup of yeah. tea. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Please. Then but, I'll do, then I'll do the hand sign and say, excellent. Exactly. But, yeah. Exactly. Then you get your air guitar. But yeah. um, I, uh, I, I, and I have so much love for the, the not only the franchise, but all my friends, you know, but behind behind the camera and in front of the camera that I made those films with because, I, you know, Keanu and I made them at very seminal periods of our, our youth. And so this is like who we grew up with. And these are like, this is like our family. So um, I have great joy for the franchise. So it doesn't, you know, it's not something that I, I wish would go away in that way. Would you ever do a fourth film or do you feel like that's it now? Are you happy to close the door and think like a lot of are, people say like it's the we're tinkering. Yeah, we're tinkering with the fourth. Um, yeah. We like working together. The writers, you know, are really talented and have a really great idea for a fourth. So we just can't, I mean, because of the strike, we can't do anything. So it's pencils down, work down, thoughts down, concept down. Um, so when the strike is over, we'll we'll come back to the table and start looking at that again. With the strike, does it then allow you to focus on other stuff as well? Does it give you that chance to then put hold? I'm not saying it's a good thing because it's obviously raising a point, but does it give you that chance then to take a step back and look at the other stuff that's going on in the world and finish projects? Like you said, there's stuff that you're doing independently. Does it give you that chance to then, okay, why well, I'm going to have to have some time out. Everyone else is having time out, you know. Does it then allow you to kind of finish some stuff that you may have not got 
to if this strike hadn't happened? Yeah. Yeah, every, I, I say mean, that with full respect. Are... I want to be careful yeah, not no, quoted it. saying it's a good thing. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, no, it's terrible. And um, and there is a lot of work to do for the strike. There's a lot of people who need help. Um, there's a lot of community going on um, amongst writers, directors, and actors, uh, understanding the issues, trying to help navigate our way through the issues. There's a lot to do with the strike every day. And I'm on several different committees that are dealing with specific issues around the strike. And and uh, one that I joined that's that's um, that's a union solidarity coalition that's raising money for for union members who have lost their health insurance, which is a lot of them. So, I mean, it is a crisis. So that that's taking up a lot of time as it should. Um, but, no, it is also a moment just to be with my family and to just, you know, really have more time for, you know, my own personal life. And I'm taking advantage of that. That's important. I mean, there's times I'm sure when you were shooting Ben and Ted, you were away for a long time. Uh, I had Ed Solomon on the podcast. He was my uh, guest for episode 100. And, uh, He's the best. Oh my God, I absolutely love That's why I got him for episode 100. I wanted to celebrate a milestone and I wanted people to realize just how amazing he is because I think he's just a, a genius. I think he's funny yeah. and I just think he doesn't have any idea of just how good he is at what he does. Yeah. Uh, one of the most humble guys ever. But, um, I was asking about trying to get the work-life balance and with you having three children and a wife and all the world that goes along with it, it must be tough to kind of always try and get the right amount of time. So you don't miss the sports day. You don't miss the graduation. You don't miss the stuff. And I think from what I see uh, from your Instagram and your social media and how much of your life you share, you, they're your forefront. They're your priority. You're never going to do anything to stops you from being around the ones you love. Yeah, the family is is kind of first for me, and um, uh, and having a, a sort of a normal away from the entertainment industry life is is of primary importance for me, uh, for my mental well being as well as my kids. So uh, a lot of decisions that I've made, um, the majority of my adult life, have revolved around how to keep that balance. Um, because I came up as a child actor, and so you see how difficult that is very young. And how, you know, and I certainly learned by trial and error, it's hard and, uh, and it, it can re not work very easily. So you really have to make decisions that are, that are fundamental to making that work. I, I got it wrong so many times, I think, in my kind of 30s. I think there's a massive jump from 30 to 40. And I think in the 30s, I was in the 30s. That sounds like I was in 1930s. When I was 30, uh, yeah. I was always saying, yes, I didn't want to be the person that was missing out. I didn't want to have that fear of, oh, I didn't go to this party or be seen at this event or go to this yeah. Comic Con. And now I'm really realizing, I don't know what it is. Something changed when I was 40. I'm 41 now, but... I will say no to the festivals. I won't go to the music festival for that extra day. I won't go to the yeah. party that I sh don't really want to go to. And I say yeah. no, and I'm with my wife, I'm with my two dogs, and I go for a walk, and that is the best festival. That is the best movie event. Yeah. That is the best premiere. And it sounds really cheesy, but something's really changed in me, and I've got the balance right now, and it feels yeah. really, really good. I think really that's good. right. That's great. I think that if you're doing it right, you, you're making as many mistakes as possible in your 20s and 30s. And so that you get to your 40s and you're working on yourself more and you get the and I think if, if you've gotten there, you're lucky. Um, but you only get there by making 
mistakes. <laughs> yeah. You go to too many parties where you want to try and find the best way to leave without anyone noticing yeah. <laughs> too many times. So then you can enjoy yeah. a nice cup of tea and just a bit of telly in bed at 10 o'clock yeah. in the weekend. But uh, yeah. Alex, thank you. Your time is uh, sacred and I really, really genuinely appreciate you coming back on. It's an honor and to have you on three times is truly a, a dream come true. I never even thought we'd get you on once. So uh, I can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart for coming back on. Um, I wish you all the luck with this release. I can't wait that as people are listening to this, it's not one of those things we talk about that might come out in a few months or people can see it if they go to a certain screening it's going to be available for everyone uh, and anyone and i really hope people get to see this and then give you the success and hopefully the the recognition that it deserves oh thanks mark well it's it's always great to chat with you and uh happy to be back and uh and break a record for number four (laughs) definitely and let's do it before ai otherwise if we talk about ai in four years the podcast will be just heads of us talking that won't be really us it'll be voiceovers yeah. that might it'll be, be us yeah, and i don't want exactly. that i want to uh, no, I, I want to do it properly <laughs> but um it means the world dude and i i can't thank you enough great thanks mark it was great to see you So there it is. There's my interview with me and the amazing Alex Winter, a guy that I've really become friends with and speak to all the time. And you may have noticed on the episode that we didn't actually talk about the final piece of music. It completely slipped my mind. And this is something that I've had on Mark and me since the start. But I text him and he came back to me straight away. And as you heard, his choice was absolutely awesome. You can't go wrong with a bit of David Bowie. And the air remix of A Better Future is something that I think fits this episode perfectly. And so does Alex. The lyrics sum it up just absolutely perfectly. So thanks so much. I want to give a big shout out to Alex for coming back on the podcast and giving me his time. It means the absolute world to me. And as you heard, we will make it that Alex breaks the record and comes back for a fourth time in the very near future. If you've enjoyed today's episode, all I ask in return, because these episodes will always be free, is just to share it. It goes a massive long way if you hit that share button on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. And I've made it really easy by putting all the links on markandme.com. You may not realise at home just how far it can go by hitting that retweet button. You may have a follower that loves documentaries or loves Alex's work and suddenly sees the picture, sees the podcast, checks it out and before you know it they're watching the YouTube effect, they're listening to Mark and me and that's all the power of just hitting one button. So please, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please share, share, share. I also do have a Patreon account, but I make no money from this. This just goes into the actual paying of the running of this podcast each and every month so I can host it on all these different sites, travel the country recording more episodes for you guys at home. So please, if you can do that, there's a link on markandme.com. It costs as little as £1 a month and all that really goes a long way. In return, you get exclusive episodes called The Lost Tapes, which are only for people that support me on Patreon. Not only that, you get stickers, badges and a monthly newsletter and so much more. So please, if you really can support me, it really means the world to me. 
I'll be back in only a few days time but like I said if you've enjoyed today's episode and want to check out the YouTube effect I can remind you one more time it's on Amazon Prime in the UK right now or you can go and see it on Google or all the different sites across the world if you want please do it's amazing and then let me know what you think but until I'm back with a brand new episode look after yourself take care watch the YouTube effect and I'll speak to you all very soon.